been a privilege for me to be here. I am grateful to know the pastor. You have a wonderful pastor, Pastor Stanley. So I think you probably already figured that out by now. And I am grateful Scott for having me here today. I'm also very grateful for your generosity towards the cooperative program and the Young Armstrong Easter offer. I am the North American Mission Board missionary to New Orleans, Louisiana. And we have seen God do some incredible things over the last few years. By God's grace, we've been able to plant 20 churches in New Orleans, where the population of New Orleans is right under a million. And 10% of that population would describe themselves as evangelicals. So there's a lot of room for work and ministry and gospel sharing in New Orleans. And we've also seen 126 people baptized over the last two years. So the Lord is doing a great work among our church planters there in New Orleans. Uh, we're seeing God's grace and what has long been known as the city of care for God, we are seeing God transform for His glory. And I am so grateful to be a partner with you in that journey. As your church gives to the cooperative program, as your church participates in the Annie Armstrong Future Offering, you are having an impact in a city that desperately needs the gospel and cities all across North America that need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Today I want to come and share with you and preach to you from God's Word as I gave just a little bit of an update for New Orleans. I want to encourage you to be an everyday missionary right where God has you in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. The title of my message is An Everyday Missionary Living in Babylon. If you'd stand with me this morning, we're going to read the Word of God together. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. One of the reasons that I love having churches stand when I read the Word of God, is often we can't forget that this is the Lord speaking. When we hear the Word of the Lord, we often associate it with the pastor in the pulpit. But we never need to lose sight that when we are hearing the Word of God, we're hearing the Word of God. And it should carry great weight in our life. Although He's using me as a mouthpiece today, this is the word of the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariel, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. 
I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plan that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortune and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place in which I sent you into exile. Father, I pray this morning your Holy Spirit would move my Lord. Lord, we are indeed exiles living in Babylon. Father, no different than the nation of Israel who was in Babylon during that day. Lord, do you have a plan and do you have a purpose for us? God, live on mission for your glory, Lord, right where you have us. So, Father, I pray, Lord, as we look at this text today, Father, we would see exactly what you're saying to the nation of Israel. And, Lord, how you are exhorting them to be on mission with you, Lord, right where you have placed them. Father, may we do the same. Lord, may we recognize, Lord, we are everyday missionaries where we live. And Lord, may we seek to be your people, God, as we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we demonstrate the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, right where we are. So God, speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few things about the text, and I'm going to give you some application points. Important for you to know the background of this letter, the background of the text that we just look at. The kingdom of Judah has fallen, and the kingdom of Judah is under the occupation of the Babylonians. Now, what has happened in this text is Jerusalem has not been destroyed as of yet. But Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken the first group of captives, the first deportation of skilled people out of Jerusalem, and he has taken them to Babylon. They're called the exiles. So what we have in this story is we have a group of exiles that have been taken from Judah. They've been taken from Jerusalem. They have been taken from the holy city of God, and they have been put smack dab in the middle of Babylonia. And they're there as exiles. One of the things that I believe when you really look at this text, you come to find out, probably in this group of exiles are people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are taken in that first deportation to Babylon. Though they're not mentioned here, we know that there are exiles living in Babylon. And here's the background of what's going on. The reason that the Israelites, the reason Judah is in captivity at this point is because they haven't lived out their purpose that God had called them to do. They're actually under God's discipline. Part of what is happening in this story is God is using Nebuchadnezzar and God is using the kingdom of Babylon to discipline the people of Israel partly because they're not living on mission with the Lord. And instead of being a light unto the nations, they have become a light unto themselves and actually adopted the practice of the other nations around them and resorted to idolatry and they're not being the people that God called them to be. Isaiah 49, 6 says, he says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Genesis 12, 2-3 says this, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
One of the purposes for the nation of Israel and being God's people is that they would be a light unto the nations. They are not being a light unto the nations. They find themselves in captivity in Babylon. They find themselves in the, in the place where God is using Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to discipline his people. And in this text, you have Jeremiah the prophet who is hearing a word from the Lord. And Jeremiah the prophet is actually back in Jerusalem. And he's in Jerusalem with a bunch of other prophets. They just happen to be false prophets. And in Jerusalem, in that time, under a, under a king that is just a puppet for Nebuchadnezzar, these false prophets are speaking to him and saying, hey, we got a word from the Lord. And the Lord has told us that we need to send word to the exiles in Babylon and let them know they're getting out in two years. They're not going to be there very long. God told us that they're going to get let out and that they're going to bring all the stuff back to Jerusalem. God speaks to Jeremiah the prophet. He says, no, no, no. They're not getting out of Babylon. They're going to be there far more than two years. In fact, they're going to be there for about 70 years in Babylon. And the background of this letter is Jeremiah the prophet is actually writing to the exiles in Babylon because what it seems, what seems to have happened is that the exiles in Babylon have gotten word from the false prophets in Jerusalem that, hey, you're not going to be there very long. And this is what God says. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. So the background of the letter, don't miss this. We find the people who are under the discipline of the Lord because they're not living on mission. And we find the people in exile in Babylon. That city, it's a real place, by the way, but it's also a picture of something. In the Bible, we see Babylon as a real geographic city where Nebuchadnezzar set up his kingdom. It's the, it's the, the, the capital. And then we also have this picture of Babylon being everything bad with the world, right? You guys got that? And, and Israel finds himself right in the middle of that city. Let me tell you what I am guaranteeing you that none of the exiles wanted to do. None of them wanted to be in Babylon. And all of them probably were having a, 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 just a pity party because they had been taken out of the great city of God, God's great people, and they find themselves living right in the middle of the pagan nation of Babylon, and I guarantee you, they are miserable where they're at. So this letter is stunning to them. And God sends them a message and sends them a letter, and he said, I put you there, and not only did I put you there, this is how I want you to live while you're there. So the background of the letter, and then the exhortation of the letter is in verses 4 through 7. Circle verse 4. And the beginning of this letter, it is almost like God knows that the Israelites in captivity in Babylon, they need to hear this stunning word. I put you there. <clears throat> I put you there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God makes it very clear at the beginning of this letter to Jeremiah, the captives in Babylon. Make no mistake about it. You're there because I put you there. You're there because I put you there. And then he goes through 11 imperatives. This Hebrew imperative that you see here, it's, a, it's, a, it's an expression, it's a mood that expresses a command. And, and these 11 imperatives are commands that God gives. Now, what's unusual about this is 11 imperatives come in verses 4 through 7. It's a very short section of Scripture. You usually never see imperatives used like this in the Hebrew language in such a short section. So 11 imperatives are in verses 4 through 7. There are only 12 imperatives in the whole chapter. And 11
back to back to back to back. He's giving them 11 exhortations, 11 imperatives back to back for, hey, this is how I want you to live while you're in Babylon. Here's the first four. The first four says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat the produce. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens and eat the fruit. I don't want you to miss this. God gives the nation of Israel a strategy for living on mission in the city of Babylon. And the first part of that strategy is they were to build houses, they were to live in them, they were to plant gardens and eat the fruit. All of those imperatives right there, you know what they speak of? They all speak of longevity. They all speak of you ain't getting out of here in two years. They all speak of this. Listen, don't look for a place to rent. Look for a place that you're going to be in for a little while. Build a house. I can remember we moved to New Orleans almost two and a half years ago. And when we moved out of the, the place we were renting to a place that we bought, it was just a whole different uh, feeling in our life. It was like we, we, we really planted roots. We never felt like we planted roots for the first six months we were there when we were renting a place that we just kind of didn't have any roots. But then when we bought a place and we really began to seek roots in our neighborhood and get to know the people that lived around us, and I'm a country boy and I actually planted a garden, a little urban garden in the middle of the city of New Orleans, I began to feel like I was going to be there for a little while. And the Lord speaks to the nation of Israel, and these imperatives are all leading them to understand you're not getting out of your own way. You're going to be here for a little while. Build houses, live in them, plant a garden, eat the fruit. You guys have never planted a garden. There's a journey to planting a garden. You know what I'm talking about? You plant it, you get it ready in the spring. You plant it in May. You have to take care of it in June and July. And then if you're like me, you get tired of it, it gets overgrown, you just have to let it go in August. you got to water it, and then you take in the fruit. And in New Orleans, you know, one of the things that I love is that my garden that I planted, when I lived in North Mississippi, you know, I only really had from May to, to September. That's all I had. Man, I've been bringing in tomatoes and peppers in the middle of February, or middle of January. So it just goes on and on and on. A lot of things God is speaking to here for them to understand they're going to be there for a while. I love what a commentator writes about this. Anyone thinking he was going to be back home in two years might not make these kind of commitments. Here they were being told to roll up their sleeves and get to the busyness of living. Theirs is going to be a long exile, and as the saying goes, bloom where you are planted. Here's the next five imperatives. Take wives. The text says take wives. Have kids. Take wives for your sons and daughters to marry. Give your daughters away in marriage. Multiply, have a bunch of kids and a big family. Now I'm going to tell you why this is a standalone sermon, and I'm going to say very little about it. It's a standalone sermon because the major part of the strategy for the nation of Israel in that line is this. Take care of your family. Then it works. I've had people look at it, and it works. Take care of your family. There's nothing over there. And if you think about being everyday missionaries in Babylon, when you think about this text right here, we look at this, it doesn't resonate with us because we don't recognize big families as a mission strategy. We don't do that in our culture. This culture did. A big family was the most honorable and respected thing that you could have. And here, you see this picture of God's take care of your family, grow your family, have a big family. I want to encourage you. I'm not going to jump on you about having a big family. It totally works, but they don't. Your marriage, your family is the greatest witness you have. And we bemoan where we are in our culture as North American Christians. And we bemoan it all the while for the last 50 years in the life of the local church. We have done nothing to enrich our marriages and our families and stand on the Word of God 
for what it means to have a God-honoring marriage and a God-honoring family. My friends, we have to get back to the Bible and recognize our marriage and our family are a witness to the world. And if we want to really be everyday, because let me tell you what, we're not the moral majority anymore. We're the prophetic minority. And if we're going to have a, a witness in the culture we live in, even in the Bible Belt buckle of Mississippi, we're going to have to have God-honoring, biblically sound marriages and families that honor the Lord because that's the greatest witness we have in the world that we live in today. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but God-honoring marriages and God-honoring families, they are not the norm anymore. And then we recognize that that is a witness to the world. Here's the last two imperatives. Seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. Seek the welfare of the city and pray for the city. Now, I love what Philip Riker writes about this. because it, It's stunning. When the, when the nation of Israel gets this letter read to them in Babylon, they're hearing God say, seek the welfare of Babylon and pray for the city. It is a stunning message to them where they are and probably what they're thinking and feeling. Imagine the reaction of Jeremiah's prophecy was read in the Jewish ghetto of Babylon. There, God's people were languishing in captivity, bemoaning their faith, complaining about the crime rate in the wretched Babylonian city school system. But God gave them a hard sell. You're going to love this place, he said. Wonderful place to raise a family, exciting opportunities for small business, great location right in the heart of the Fertile Crescent. One senses God's passion for urban planning. Yet he was talking about the city of Babylon of all places. His surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant building the city of God smack dab in the middle of the city of man. No doubt when the captives discussed their sojourn in Babylon, they used words like abandoned, banished, condemned, to describe what God had done to them. But that's not how God saw things. He viewed the exile as a mission. Literally, what he said was, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. Amen? This world isn't our home. And my friends, I want to remind you while we're here, we're missionaries for the glory of the Lord. We see the exhortation of the letter. In verse 8, now we see the admonition of the letter. The admonition of the letter, Jeremiah, just makes sure they understand. Quit believing these liars. There's people lying to you about your purpose and your place in Babylon. Don't believe the liars. And I just want to say that there's still the father of lies who is alive and well today. John 8, 44 says you are your father the devil. And your will is to be your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I can't may have life and have it The admonition of the letter to the nation of Israel, don't believe the liar. This title, here's an encouraging word for you, and I hope it's very encouraging for you. There's some North American Christians that think that we have just lost the fight. That is not true. The gates of hell will not prevail on the church. And listen, this is what we need to realize. I think many of us culturally as Christians and Christians in North America have bought into the lie and have given up a little bit that the church has lost. My friends, we don't lose. The church wins. And we need to walk in that. We need to 
It may all be well and true. But Jesus is king. And his church wins. And I'm a part of the church, amen? Don't believe the lies. See, I have an issue of love. Here's the hope of the love. Verses 10 through 14. Before I give you some application points. I want to be sensitive when I preach this part of the text right here. Many people take this verse and they love it. They use it as a great verse. I love it. I was with someone one time and they had this verse, you know, taped in their car with a bunch of little smiling faces around. Part of it is verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And, and we, that's a good verse. It's an encouraging verse. I, I just want to remind you when you think about that verse and you put smiley faces all around it. I'm not saying it's bad, but I want you to remind this verse was given to a people that were in captivity and they were in exile. And I want to tell you what, they things weren't good for them. <laughs> they just weren't good. And God gives, I mean, I'm sure there's some people out in the crowd that were rolling their eyes. Really? You got plans for us? Plans for good? Plans for welfare? You're going to restore our fortunes? We've lost everything. We're here in the middle of Babylon. I want to encourage you that the hope of that letter isn't that God's just got a plan for you and that God wants to give you a future and a hope. That, that's, it, it, that's, it's, the hope of the letter here in these verses is that God was going to save a remnant of Israelites. They were going to go back to Jerusalem. They were going to rebuild the city to the, 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 the people of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they were going to prepare a city to host the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The hope of this verse, 10 through 14, the hope is that God's got good plans to make you feel better. And I'm, I'm all for that, amen? The hope of this is, is Jesus is coming. That was the hope of that letter. Don't get caught up that you're in Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years. But God's got bigger plans. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't control the sovereign hand of the Lord. And God will do what he set out to do. And he does just that, doesn't he? Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian captivity does not stop the plan of the Lord. The hope of the letter is that Jesus comes. The hope of this letter was that God would save a remnant, be sent back to rebuild the city that would host the Savior, that would be the Redeemer of the world. The hope they were to look for was the coming of Christ. This letter is a great, great challenge for you and I today. I want to take the, the 11 imperatives idea that God spoke to the nation of Israel. I'm going to give you five imperatives quickly today. Five imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday mission. As you are someone who is a captive living in Babylon, this is your home. Everyday missionaries are those who practice life on mission where God has placed them. Everyday missionaries are those who practice life on mission where God has placed them. Now let me be clear here. I believe that there's a real call in the Bible for a missionary, for somebody that God places on their heart and their life to carry the gospel. Uh, across the world. I believe, I, I believe that there is a, a call for God to use missionaries to take the gospel. But there's also the reality that you and I are everyday missionaries right where we are. That you and I have the responsibility to carry the gospel and share the gospel and demonstrate the gospel as a missionary right where we live, right where our feet are located. So here's five imperatives for embracing your purposes as an everyday missionary. Here's number one. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. I'll start out with the hardest one first. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. I guarantee you that's where the Israelites 
don't start. Because they don't want to be there. And God says, I'll put you there. It's impossible to be on mission with God if you are dissatisfied and discontent with your life, vocation, and purpose. Everybody is talking about what it means to be on mission with God. I got news for you. If you're dissatisfied with your life, your location, your purpose right now, you cannot be on mission with God. You cannot be on mission with God if you are dissatisfied and discontent with your life, location, and purpose. And part of that letter speaks to the nation of Israel and says, I put you there. Get over. Get busy. We spend much of our lives wishing we were someone else living somewhere else, doing something else. My 21 years of pastoral ministry, this is what I would sum up a lot of my counseling. We spend much of our lives wishing we were someone else, living somewhere else, doing something else. God sovereignly knows who you are, where you are, and has given you a purpose for your glory. My friends, when you spend your life miserable, discontent, and dissatisfied, you are holding your fist up to the Lord and saying, I know better than you. You got it wrong. And the only option you have for a heart like that is to tell the Lord you're sorry. And to repent of that because he's sovereign. He knows. I left a great situation in North Mississippi. A church I planted and pastor for nine years. I don't want to say it was all rainbows and lollipops. We had our ups and downs. But I was in a good place in year nine. And we were planting churches. We had... We had grown, we had built the building. I had people in the church that loved me dearly, that loved my family, that took care of me. That's a huge thing. When you're at you're a church, you have people that love you and take care of you and they support you. Pat, the church followed my leadership. So it was a great plan. I wasn't looking to leave at all. I wasn't even on my radar. I just finished uh, uh, finishing the house that we had. I had 14 acres outside of San Antonio. I'm, I'm living the dream. North American Mission Board called. Louisiana Baptist Convention, the New Orleans Baptist Association, would you be interested in being a missionary for New Orleans, Louisiana? I said, absolutely not. <laughs> they asked me again. I said, no. At the meeting of the Baptist Convention, I said, I'll think about it. And then I called back and said, no. I got a handwritten card from the association director, New Orleans. He said, listen, would you just come visit me for a while? And after that, we won't ask you anymore. And I joined up both of them that we didn't know Honor. And I called back the, the person I told no, and I said, well, we're going to come. I know we're going to sign a little here, but we're going to come. We came to New Orleans. We were there for two days. New Orleans, I love, I want to make sure I preface this, I love where I live, and I love where I live, and I love to see I fall in love with it. New Orleans is dirty. It smells. Uh, there's things in New Orleans you'll never see anywhere else. You, 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 I can go to the Marriott at any point today and probably see somebody naked riding a bike. I think it's just part of it. It's great. You see things you've never seen. see. You know, lostness, epidemic of lostness there. We knew the Lord called us there. Man, we cried all the way home from New Orleans. We ran out of tears in Jackson. <laughs> because we knew we were going to give up the great relationships, the great people. I was driving down Elysian Field. I'd been there for three months. And I was miserable. And I had no influence. Where I came from, I had great influence. Not only my church, but in the region. I was in a city that no 
But Jesus is my king, not America. <laughs> Russell Moore writes, There is no time for fear, outrage, or politicizing. We see that we are strangers and exiles in American culture. We are on the wrong side of history, just like we started. We should have been all along. Let's seek the kingdom. Let's stand with the gospel. Let's fear our God, but let's not fear our mission field. Here's number four. Renounce fear. Quit being paralyzed by your past and afraid of the present. Renounce fear. Quit being paralyzed by your past and afraid of the present. One of the number one reasons we get, we ask people why they don't share their faith. And there is just an epidemic in churches today that people not share their faith. The majority of members of churches do not verbally share God. I want to give you all the stat that would impress you, depressing me. The majority of members of Christian churches do not verbally share the good news of Jesus Christ. There is something terribly wrong with that. Some of you have bought into the lies, and you are afraid to share what God has done for you. Sometimes I believe it's just as much of a fear issue that we're not sharing the gospel as it is a disobedience issue. Man, I want to encourage you. If you're in Christ Jesus, you have all you need. To share the story of Jesus Christ. Scott mentioned the story in India. It brought it to my mind. A young man was baptized. His name was Gulshan. I don't remember his story. And while I remember Gulshan's story in India about his baptism, because this was what the deal was with Gulshan. Gulshan was in a country where if you came to know Christ, you were excommunicated by your family. You had a high chance of being beat in your community. We had already encountered some people in India. Who had been beaten because of their faith in Christ. And when you publicly identified in water baptism, you were really, really taking a chance. And what I remember that was so compelling to me about Wilshon is we went through the story of the, of the Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling from Jerusalem and Stephen shares the gospel with him. He gets saved and he wants to get baptized. He says, Where's water? He wants to and then they find the pool and they baptize that brother immediately. We're telling that story in Gulshan. I mean, he says, where's the water? And he wanted to get baptized. And we were like trying to talk him out of it. We really were. Listen, you better really think through this. And this is something. And, and they had already been working for him for some time. Man, it was so powerful to see him publicly baptized in a little community swimming pool that he lived in. And that he was willing to go forward and publicly say, Jesus is my Savior. I have repented of my sins. I've trusted Him alone, and He is Lord of my life. My friend, there are people dying today around the world because of the good news of Jesus Christ. The most you're going to get is spit on or slap. That's the most you're going to get, brother. There may be a rare occasion where a cuckoo comes in or something, but other than that, you're going to get spit on or slap. Quit being afraid to share the gospel. And, and you may think, well, I can't be just do my path. That's why I got a second part of the statement. Renounce fear, quit being paralyzed by your past and afraid of the present. God's grace gives us freedom from our past and courage for the present. God's grace gives us freedom from our past and courage for the present. Man, if you're worried about your past or you're worried about courage, 
freedom from our past and courage from the present. My daughter, Hannah Ruth, who's not here, she is terrified of uh, people in hospitals. But she's not anymore, but she was when she was a kid. She's nine now. When she was uh, six and five, she, she saw one, you know, she saw the cow, Chick-fil-A, that, that big person in the costume. She would go bananas. I mean, I'm not kidding. Panic attack. She's out of there screaming and yelling. We were coming back from family vacation in Orange Beach, and we stopped at Chick-fil-A. Like most Chick-fil-A's, they had room for about 50 people, and they had about 400 in them. And we're standing in line getting our chicken sandwiches, and, and we're waiting. We got all the kids with us, and I'm there, and I look in the corner. And we have got people, we don't work our way up. We don't have our spot in line. I'm not giving up. And I look in the corner, and the, and the cow's coming. And I said, oh, goodness gracious, can I see that cow? She's going to go to the right here. It's all the people. It's going to be the She saw the cow. Scream, yell, climbed up my back like a cat. Now I'm just on my neck. She's perched on my neck, screaming, Get me out of here! Get me out of here! Get me out of here! I look like an abusive parent. <laughs> last Christmas, Anna was nine, Anna was eight last Christmas. She comes up to me. I'm sitting in my recliner here in my bed. She said, Dad, I just want to let you know. She's, she's my little eight-year-old, nine-year-old now. It's like 27. She said, Dad, I want you to know. I've overcome my fear of people in costumes. I'm now ready to go to Disneyland. <laughs> serious. I mean, she's serious. Thank you, Hannah, for letting me know. I'll get another job. <laughs> we need to move past our fear. That's why we don't share the good news of Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ, we have all we need to share the gospel. Here's number five. Respond to your commission. You have been commissioned to be an everyday missionary. Respond to your commission. You have been commissioned to be an everyday missionary. Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. What a powerful word there. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always. We know we miss this every time we miss this passage. Look at the bookends. The bookends of the Great Commission is this. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I'm given to you. I'm going to be with you forever. You're not by yourself. Go get busy. Share the gospel. Make disciples. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, every Christian is either a missionary or an apostle. Every Christian is either a missionary or an apostle. I don't want to be an apostle only person that recognizes the opportunity to be on mission to where you are. My nephew, the Recon Marine, he spent a lot of time in training to be a Recon Marine, a part of the Special Forces of the Marine Group. He started out with his group, it was close to 100 people, and they go through this regimented, extremely difficult training really leads everybody out. Some of the hardest things I've ever heard of. He sent us some videos of some of the training. One of them, they're, they're underwater in a pool with weights tied around them with machine guns and backpacks having to navigate. And I'm just like, I would have a other panic attack and just quit right then and there. He makes it through the training. He gets up to the last test. The last test of this incredibly long hike with full suit, gun, backpack, everything. 
Jamaica. That little ring singing. And they, they commissioned him that day. He came home for a few weeks. After a few weeks, they shipped him off to another place, to an island in Asia. Because he was commissioned for a mission. He wasn't commissioned to sit around. My friends, you've been commissioned for a mission. What a great day we live in to get busy. You bow your head and close your eyes. Father, as we have a time of invitation, Pastor Scott's here in the front. Lord, I pray, God, for those that are here. Father, someone may not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray right now you would stir in the hearts of those that are here. God, they would know, Lord, that you love them so much, God, that you made a way for them to be forgiven of their sins. God, you sent your son, Jesus, from heaven, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, and rose from the grave. God, who ascended to the right hand of the Father. Father, you tell us in your word, Lord, if we would repent of our sins and trust in Christ, God, that we can be forgiven of our sins, and God, we can be saved. Father, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that's never trusted in Christ and will save you, Father, today will be the day of salvation for them. Lord, the Holy Spirit will work mightily. God, you draw them to yourself. And God, they will be saved today. God, they will need to come and talk to the pastor. Father, I pray, Lord, maybe there's someone visiting and they need a church home. Father, they will recognize this is a place where they can come and be on mission with you. Father, maybe they're here and they recognize they need to follow in believers' baptism. Lord, maybe they've been living in fear about publicly identifying with the Lord Jesus. Lord, we pray, God, if there's someone here that needs to be baptized, someone here that needs to be a member of this church, Lord, that today, Lord, hear my invitation, God, that they would have courage, Lord, that would come. And Father, I pray, God, for the congregation here. Lord, as we think about repenting of rebellion against your sovereignty, God, as we think about resisting the American dream, God, as we think about renouncing fear, Lord, God, rejecting an outrage culture, Lord, and Father, embracing our commission as an everyday missionary. Father, maybe across this congregation, Lord, people need to come and bend their knee and bend their heart and talk. Lord, maybe they need to pray to you. Maybe they need to ask forgiveness of some areas in their life, Lord. Father, I pray that they would do that today. I pray they would respond to the work of the Holy Spirit today. Father, I pray they would come, Lord, to respond in repentance. But Lord, also embrace the good grace, God, that we give to you. God, the grace that allows us to be forgiven, and God, the grace that allows us to have courage, Lord, to stand up and recognize that we are forgiven in Christ Jesus, and we have all we need, God, to live on mission with you. So, Father, I just pray, here in our invitation, God, a verdict on your word. Lord, that you would work by God, you would be honored by the decisions. Lord, you'd be honored by what is done. In Jesus' name we pray.